Please turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we will be reading all 41 verses. Let me remind you that this is the word of the Lord. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, that this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and he put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, 
We don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were from God, were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Good morning, friends. Welcome. Lovely to see you. And if you are new, uh, at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, Boris Johnson, the then PM of England, said this statement, which will be on the screen. He said, we are shining the light of science on this invisible killer we will be driven by the science. It's an interesting statement, and many leaders of countries made similar statements. But I want you to j just leave it up for a little bit there, Don. Just want you to see what he, how he framed it, the light of science. It's quite an interesting way of speaking about science. Um, and it's interesting that as people who live in sort of the late modern era, we have a sense that there is a unified thing called the science which shines light into the darkness of the world. It commands our allegiance, and it will deliver us from evil. And while Christians are very grateful for the light of science, for we are not against science at all, in fact, it's arguable that science would never have de developed if it wasn't for the Bible and a biblical worldview, um, we know that actually the ultimate place to look for light, to guide and to lead and to protect and to deliver us, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he himself says that in verse 5 of our reading this morning. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world, says Jesus. Now, this chapter comes between two very significant moments of Jesus' ministry in John's Gospel. In chapters 5 to 8, there has been a great turning away from Jesus. And in chapters 13 to 20, we're going to have a long description of the death of Jesus uh, in the night before he was crucified and including the day of his crucifixion. But it comes after this great rejection of Jesus. One of, the, one of the tensions in the ministry of Jesus is that even after healing people, even after the driving out of demons and the teaching with great authority, 
he is rejected wholesale by a great many people. And so one of the questions that any thoughtful reader is asking as we read John's gospel is why is the light of the world rejected? If he is the light of the world, if he is the king of God, then why do so many people turn away from him? And so we have verses like chapter 5 and verse 18, which will be on the screen. He says, can we have it on the screen? There we go. While I'm in the world, no, sorry, next verse. That's uh, chapter 5 and verse 18 is the one I'm looking for. He says, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then chapter 6 and verse 66 is another example of this rejection. It says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so it raises an important question. If Jesus' own people couldn't see that he was the light, how can anybody see that he is the light and respond to him? If anyone should have recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, it was the Jewish leaders who were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and who knew it like the back of their hands. Right under their nose was the one who fitted all the requirements to qualify as the great king of God. And they reject him, they doubt him, they plot against him, and eventually they succeed in killing him. How can that happen to the light of the world? And so this passage this morning teaches us a great truth and it gives us a great warning. The great spiritual truth that we need to hear today is that spiritual sight requires a miracle. You can't see Jesus for who he is in all of his glory and splendor unless a miracle happens to open your spiritual eyes. That's the truth we need to learn from this passage this morning. Here is the warning. The warning is that those who think that they are spiritually self-sufficient, those who think that they see clearly, apart from a miracle of Jesus, are in danger of remaining blind. That's what the story is about. To believe in Jesus takes more than an academic understanding or a general interest or even an openness of heart. It actually takes a miracle of Jesus. And so as the chapter progresses, what we're going to witness is the blind man becoming progressively more spiritually sighted and the Pharisees becoming progressively more spiritually blind. There's this lovely irony that's going on, a reversal of fortunes, if you like, that's going on in the chapter. So let's look at a couple of headings together. The first is the problem of physical blindness. And what a wonderful miracle this is. I mean, this must rate as one of the top miracles. A man born blind. Can you imagine that scenario? And he is healed by Jesus. He was probably a regular feature in the town. He was probably known and recognized and maybe even uh, tolerated and maybe some people were sympathetic towards him. Perhaps he was begging at the traffic lights. I don't know or at the entrance to a market. Somehow he managed to eke out a living. And in verse 2, they ask a very human question. They say, is this man blind as a result of sin? Well, that's a very common question. 
And behind the question lies a very common view that if bad things happen to you, it's deserved. I wonder if that's your view this morning. It's, it's, it's remarkably uh, um, widespread. It's really a bit like karma, the view that, that the life you get is what you deserve. Um, and sometimes it's true that we bring suffering on ourselves with our own sin. That, that can be true. The alcoholic who destroys his family or the arrogant person who loses all of his friends. Sometimes we do bring trouble on ourselves because of our own sin and arrogance. But it is an inadequate explanation for all suffering, isn't it? For good things happen to bad people all the time. And bad things happen to good people all the time. And it often seems undeserving either way. Uh, but I wonder if you've heard yourself ask that question. You know, what have I done to deserve this? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Um, Jesus reframes the question. He says, the man's condition is not as a result of sin. It's as a result of God. Isn't that shocking? This man's condition is not because of his sin. It's because of God and God's glory. Well, that's a challenge to our view that uh, that karma happens. The man is blind because God permitted it, says Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus gives the answer in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, many of us think that God's work is only on display when he removes suffering from us. There are many, many Christians that have that view. Let's have, let's have modern day miracles so that God can be glorified. No, God is glorified even with the suffering of blindness. Let's be clear. And so it's a very important lesson, isn't it, for them to learn, especially in the face of the next few chapters when Jesus is going to be taken from them and will experience the ultimate suffering and death on the cross. And so Jesus mixes saliva and dust to make mud, and he puts it on the man's eyes. It's quite an elaborate miracle. We, we know from the other miracles that Jesus did that he didn't need to do that. He didn't need any raw material. He could have just spoken or touched the man, and he could have seen, but he does it in order to drag it out, in order to teach more about what's going on. And so he puts the mud on the man's eyes, tells him to go and wash. He went, washed, and came home seeing. What a remarkable thing that's happened. And John records four responses to this great sign in the rest of the chapter. Uh, and he does it by showing us four interviews with, with various groups of people. Um, there's a neutral response. There's a hostile response. There's a fearful response. And finally, there's the right response. And so we're going to look at that secondly, four responses, which is really the bulk of the chapter. So first of all, the neighbors from verse 8 to 12, they respond neutrally. At first, in verse 8, there's a little bit of confusion. Um, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, and he looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. You can't miss the humor in the whole thing. They're having this big conversation in front of him about who he is. Is he the guy who was at the traffic lights or isn't he? Actually, I am that guy. You know, I'm not a doppelganger of the guy who used to be at the traffic lights. 
And so there's a bit of confusion and incredulity. Perhaps we've got the wrong person. There must be a rational reason for this. But they are presented with, are they not, with irrefutable evidence. Here is the man who we know was blind, but now he's not blind. How do we reconcile that? How do we understand that? And so in verse 10, they say, well, how then were your eyes opened? And in verse 11, he plainly tells them what happened. Jesus has their attention. I hope he has your attention this morning. They're curious. The evidence is before them. It's irrefutable. They can see it with their own eyes. And at this stage in the story, they are presented really as neutral about Jesus. Where is he? They say, verse 12, I don't know, says the, the, the man. And so the evidence pushes them to want answers. We, we, they're neutral, but they're leaning towards wanting to know more. Where is he? Perhaps they wanted to go and talk to him themselves. Second response. The neighbors are neutral. The Pharisees are hostile. Verses 13 to 17. Here is the response of the stuck-up religious leaders and theologians. And it is a hostile response. They do their own interrogation of the man in verse 15. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man said, and I washed, and now I see. Like the neighbors, they are presented with clear and irrefutable evidence. And in a spectacular example of missing the wood for the trees, they set aside the evidence in favor of their theology because Jesus does not fit their mold. This miracle happened on a Sabbath. How dare he? The Jewish law forbade healing on the Sabbath. The Jewish law forbade the making of dough and therefore probably the making of mud. How dare he do that on the Sabbath? Verse 16, the Pharisee said, This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Either the evidence is false or there is something wrong with their theology. And it's a very striking irony in the passage that they missed the one, that, that one of the great signs that the Messiah was amongst them Fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath was that he would bring sight to the blind. Look at this lovely verse from Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6. Do we have that verse? I'll read it to you. I, the Lord, here is a promise of what the Messiah will do when he comes. 700 years before Jesus, this was written. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a, the covenant people and a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. There is a promise that when the Messiah comes, one of the signs that he is the Messiah that you ought to accept and believe in is that he'll bring sight to the blind and bring the fulfillment of all that the Sabbath pointed towards, peace and reconciliation with God. But they miss it because they're too worried about their rules. And so for, not for lack of evidence, they, they reject Jesus because of their preconceived and faulty ideas. 
There is nothing rational about their rejection of Jesus. And many people treat Jesus like that today. They want a different Jesus. They want one who conforms to them and to their rules and to their thoughts and to the decisions that they have made about life. They reject him not because of rational discussion or thought, but because he's inconvenient and because he challenges the status quo. So still unconvinced, they summon, they've spoken to the man who is the guy involved in the whole thing, so now they summon his parents. Verses 18 to 23, he has the third response, they are fearful. In verse 20, his parents corroborate the story. We know he's our son. We know that he was born blind. We know that he can now see, but we don't know how. They can't dispute the miracle. They know that it's true. But they have got a different concern than the truth, which verse 22 makes very clear. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And so they reject Jesus because they are fearful of the establishment of the religious leaders. They ignore the evidence. They want to claim plausible deniability. Go and speak to him yourself, they say. He's of age. He can answer for himself. Isn't it amazing, even if it means hanging out their son to dry, they'll do anything to avoid being shunned, being put out of the synagogue. And so the man is summoned a second time, and here we have the fourth response, which is the right response, verses 24 to 34. Again, he's interrogated. A second time, verse 24, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Notice the, the not too subtle manipulation there in verse 24. Give glory to God, they say. Kind of using religion to get the answers that they want. It's an ironic statement dripping with hypocrisy, is it not? They had no interest whatsoever in glorifying God. If they did, they would have responded very differently to the work of God and to the King of God and to the light of God. And simply, in verse 25, simply and humbly, he replies, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that a lovely line? Does it ring a bell for you? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. It was blind, but now I see. I think this chapter must have been in John Newton's mind as he wrote Amazing Grace. He doesn't do what the Pharisees have done and set aside the evidence. He doesn't do what his parents have done and ignore the evidence. Undeterred by the threat of being shunned, not only by family, but by the religious establishment, he willingly and eagerly associates himself with Jesus and embraces the cost. Verse 34 is the cost. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
I wonder if anything will convince them. Witness after witness, interrogation after interrogation, examination after examination, the physical evidence in front of them. Can you see that they are blind? It's not that they can't see. It's that they won't see. And that's true for many, maybe some here this morning, who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how you will respond to Jesus this morning. What will it take to convince you? The story ends with a conversation of clarification between Jesus and the man, where we see, lastly, the problem of spiritual blindness. That's my uh, last heading this morning. Verse 35 to 41. Gradually in the story, I wonder if you noticed that the man's attitude towards Jesus begins to shift in the story. So what does he call Jesus in verse 11? Have a look for yourself. He calls Jesus the man. He's just a man there in verse 11. Look at verse 17. Sorry to keep you on your toes, you guys at the back there. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. There's a movement there. He's a man, verse 11, verse 17. He's a prophet, verse 33. It's worth seeing. There we are. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, the man says. He's now from God. And then finally, verse 38. Look at what he calls him there. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. It's a lovely progression, that, isn't it? Man, prophet, from God, and ultimately and finally he is conquered by Jesus, Lord. Have you been conquered by Jesus? Is he your Lord? Here are Jesus' questions to the man and to you this morning. Do you believe, verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Friends, can I ask you, what is your excuse for rejecting Jesus this morning? It, it, it's, not the, it's not the lack of evidence. There's lots of evidence. It's got to be something else. It might be fear. It might be a commitment to some other system or magisterium, or establishment. It might be just plain indifference like the neighbors. But the challenge of this story is, will you call Jesus Lord? You don't need any more evidence. Here it is. Eyewitness evidence of what happened. You know, light does two things, doesn't it? Light illumines some, but it also can blind others. Jesus is the light of the world. There are some who will respond to the light of the world in belief, and there will be others who are blinded by it and will turn away from it. It is a chilling reminder that those who refuse to put their trust in Jesus are not doing so for lack of evidence. It is, in fact, because they are under judgment from Jesus. The story that began with a question of the relationship between physical blindness and sin 
ends with a question about spiritual blindness and sin. And so look at verse 40 as we close. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What are we blind to? Jesus said, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Perhaps that's your response to Jesus this morning. Perhaps you feel that you don't need Jesus to be spiritual. You can see. You claim to see. You just do your own thing in your own way and approach God on your own terms. You claim to see. Jesus would say you're blind. There is a worse horror than physical blindness. It is spiritual blindness. And so I'm asking you this morning to, I know that many of you have called Jesus Lord and live with him as your Lord. But not everybody would have done that. Will you consider your position? You can, like the neighbors, you can ask for more understanding. We'd love to help you with that. If you're not ready, we can talk to you more. Like the Pharisees, you can commit intellectual suicide and descend into blind hostility towards Jesus. Like the parents, you can ignore him out of fear that he'll disrupt your life. Or like the man, you can see Jesus for who he is. Call him Lord and worship him. Now will you bow with me as we pray? Just going to give you a moment to reflect on how you have responded to Jesus, which, res which response reflects your response. And maybe you want to say something appropriate in the privacy of your own heart and mind to him this morning. Father, many of us can say with this man, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. How grateful we are to you for that miracle. Not because of any of our own merit or effort or goodness or spirituality, but because of your kind, gracious miracle. You have opened our eyes. We know that Jesus is Lord. And this morning we gladly worship him. Lord, we pray for those who are still grappling with who Jesus is and with their response to him, perhaps even here this morning, and ask that you would please be merciful to them and do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Open spiritual eyes so that they will see and believe so that they will be conquered by the light of the world in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to